it comes from Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter, verses 1 to 16. Here now the reading of God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shilatiel, and Shilatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you now bow your heads and join me in prayer? Father, as we have heard now your holy word read, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would activate it into our hearts and minds so that once again our very hearts would be inflamed, our minds would be engaged, and our spirits stirred to once again to know who we are in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that in this transformation, we would become a source of celebration to the people around us because you are the one who is at work. You are the one who is this hope of this broken world. And so, God, we pray that whatever hardships and whatever struggles, whatever discouragements that we may be wrestling with even now, we pray that by your spirit you would hush it and quiet it in our hearts so that we would fully hear all that you would have to say. We pray that now that you would speak to us in spite of the one who brings this message, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So if you're one of the privileged few who grew up going to Sunday school, no doubt you would have been exposed to the wide variety of memorable Sunday school songs, songs like This Little Light of Mine, or Jesus Loves the Little Children, or He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. I'm sure you recognize those titles. Well, today, I'd like to remind you of another Sunday school song, in particular because it's very relevant to today's message, and that's the Sunday school song called Father Abraham. You remember that one? Just in case you've forgotten, here's a little sampler. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Join if you know, I am one of them, and so are you. And let's all praise the Lord. I guess I'm the only one who's going to humiliate myself today, right? Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, thank you. All right, never mind. Well, <laughs> what that memorable song is trying to convey is the biblical teaching that Abraham is the spiritual father of all Christians everywhere. And it turns out, not just Christians, but all Jews, all Muslims will identify him as their spiritual patriarch. 
Yeah, quite impressive. You see, the Bible tells us that God singled out Abraham so that he could start a new spiritual family that would spawn an entire nation, Israel, that would bless the world. Why? Because it would be through the nation of Israel that God would reclaim the world that has been severed and separated from him due to the massive cosmic failure of Adam, who was the original spiritual father of all mankind. Now, when you hear this somewhat impressive background with regard to Abraham, you may think that you have discovered the reason to why God, when he decided to come into the world by being born into an earthly family, he chose the one where Abraham would be one of his many earthly fathers. After all, what better way to show off how much of a big deal you are, how important you are as God by being born into a household, into an ancestry with someone of such high spiritual stature like Abraham, right? Well, I'm here to tell you that is not why God chose Abraham to be one of his many earthly fathers, why he chose to be born into the ancestry of Abraham. Actually, when you consider the significance of who Abraham was or maybe what he was not, we come to see the significance of what God is trying to teach us about Christmas because of how we can relate to someone like Abraham. To explain what I mean by that, three things I'd like to share with you in today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about who Abraham really was. Then we're going to talk about why Abraham is relatable to you. And finally, we're going to end it with what Abraham reveals about Christmas, who he really was, why he's so relatable to all of us, and finally, what he reveals to us about Christmas. Let's begin with the first point, who Abraham really was. So as I just said a moment ago, it's very easy for us to think that this Abraham fellow must have been an amazing, accomplished, very high-achieving kind of person. After all, how else can you explain the fact that so many people now recognize his name and even revere it, even though it's been thousands of years since the man died? I mean, just think about in our modern age today, who in our lifespan or even in the previous century has been able to retain that kind of longevity of name recognition like this guy. No one. Just think about some of the most powerful politicians. Think about um, some of the most lively celebrities, some life-changing inventors of the 20th century. Chances are, if I espouse some names to you right now, you probably wouldn't recognize them, right? I mean, I know for a fact I've spent many years talking to you guys, naming a very profound, influential figure, you know, 100 years ago. Most people are like, who is that? Who the heck is PJ, PJ talking about? See, one of the things that life teaches us is that no matter how renowned, how popular, how famous a person can be because they're so achieved and so accomplished in their generation, gets quickly forgotten in the next. But not so with Abraham. For some reason, all people across the world, from all walks of life, from all ages, recognize his name. And because that is so, it is easy for us to think that this Abraham fellow must have made the most of every moment, of every minute of his life, where he completely experienced all that life had to offer. After all, how else can you explain such longevity of name recognition that he enjoys now? But when you actually consider what the Bible says about Abraham, specifically how it first introduces Abraham to us, we come to find he wasn't like this person that we may think. 
I draw your attention to Genesis chapter 12. We're starting in verse 1. It reads this. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left left Haran. Okay, come on back. Here is the first instance of God showing up in Abraham's life, the beginning of no doubt of a profound spiritual journey. And yet, it's probably more accurate to say the end of a journey because how old is Abraham when God first shows up, first reveals himself to him? He's 75 years old, right? He is 75 years old when he first encounters the God of heaven and earth. Think about that. He is at an age that most of us won't even get to for at least another quarter of a century. Now, when you realize that, do you know what that tells us about Abraham? It tells us that he was a very, very old man. In fact, he was so old, that means he was way past the prime years where he could fully experience and therefore fully enjoy the things of life. In fact, there's one particular blessing that we know that he missed out on in the prime years of his life, and that is, of course, children because when God showed up this time in Abraham's life at 75 years of age he was still a fatherless man he was a married man for a long time to his wife Sarah but he and his wife did not enjoy being parents together no that would not happen until hang on until Abraham's a hundred years old okay it wasn't until he and his wife got to enjoy their own child as parents when Abraham was 100 years old. Now, just to help you wrap your mind around this, let me share a personal story. You know, I just turned 32 when my firstborn, Kara, came into my life, right? I just turned 32, which meant I was still somewhat in the prime years of my life where I had a lot of energy, a lot of endurance, a lot of longevity. But I got to tell you, once Kara was here, hands down, the most hardest, the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I mean, just the overwhelming psychological and physical exhaustion, the anxiety, the fear, and then, oh, man, the waking up, the night feedings, the changing of diapers, you know, the disassembling of furniture, the reassembling of furniture, the throwing out of furniture, the picking up of furniture. I mean, it was really the most daunting, difficult thing that I ever had to do, and I was in my prime. Now, imagine... If you're in triple-digit age, and that is what you had to deal with, right? Well, Abraham didn't have to imagine that because that's what he had to deal with. Now, you would think that when Sarah informed good old Abe, honey, you're not going to believe this. I'm pregnant. We're pregnant. At 100 years old? I could just imagine Abraham freaking out, being so unsettled, so unhappy, to where they would not be so welcoming of this child because he was so old and yet we come to find Abraham was just the opposite he was ecstatic he was joyful he was happy why because you need to understand something about the culture Abraham lived in you see for people living in Abraham's age the worst thing that could happen to a married man was not impregnating your wife at 100 years old no the worst thing that could happen to you as a married man in the ancient world was to not be able to impregnate your wife period being unable to have kids, being barren, was seen by many as a massive curse of God. 
Consider these words from the Unger Bible Dictionary as it defines barrenness this way. Quote, barrenness, unable to have kids, was looked upon as a ground of great reproach as well as punishment from God, end quote. Abraham spent the prime years of his life, along with his wife, feeling as if they missed out on one of the greatest blessings of life because of the barrenness. And because of that, they felt cursed by God, rejected by God, as if they were never going to be able to enjoy some of the greatest blessings that God could give. And here's the thing. When finally they did welcome their son, Isaac, he was 100 years old. Now, you can't help but to wonder, what would have been better off for Abraham? Would it have better, been better off for him for Isaac to never been born? Right? Or to have Isaac the way that he did. Because on the one hand, you do have to deal with the pain of not having kids. But then you also have to deal with the other pain of having kids, but not be able to fully enjoy and experience all the great things. Because you're too old to enjoy. It's kind of like a kind of a wicked tease of some sort. right? Now, you put all this together, and I ask you the question, who really was Abraham? You can find this information to say, it turns out, Abraham was Mr. FOMO. He was the father of missing out. He was the man who missed out on a lot in life. Now, when you realize that, now you come to see that you and he have a lot more in common than what you may have initially thought. And to break down more what I mean by that, let me go to my next point, why Abraham is relatable to you. You know, it's so easy to believe and to think that we people today have nothing in common with people of yesteryear. I mean, just go back to this Abraham guy, right? Here is this ancient Middle Eastern nomad who happens to be a senior citizen. How in the world could we relate to someone like that? I mean, we have a hard time relating to someone who's just a few years older than us. Am I right? You know, even though we may speak the same language, live in the same city, come from the same cultural ethnic background, just one little difference between us and the person next to us can make us feel like they're worlds apart. How much more must it be for someone like Abraham to us, someone who just seems so foreign, so alien to us, where we couldn't relate whatsoever? But here's what's so interesting. The Bible teaches us and life confirms that in spite of all the differences that we think separate us from the people around us, a different culture, different race, different period of time in which they live, Scripture says we actually have a lot more in common, more so than what we don't have in common. And one particular commonality that we all share with all of humanity is the limit of time. The limit of time. Consider these words from theologian A.W. Tozer as he writes, quote, We poor human creatures are constantly being frustrated by limitations imposed upon us from without and within. The days of the years of our lives are few and swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. Just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we are forced to lay our instruments down. There is simply no time enough to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our natures indicate we are capable of, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying we begin our life thinking that we can have and that we can experience all that life has to offer, or maybe a more accurate way to put it, we expect to be able to have, we expect to be able to experience all that life has to offer to us, especially if we know we are capable of obtaining these things. So for example, if you're born as a musical prodigy, you expect to be able to become a masterful musician. If you're born with such academic uh, uh, gifts, 
You expect to be rich. You expect to be successful. If you're born like me with incredible beauty, you easily expect love to come by so quickly for relationships to always be in your life. You see, when we know we are capable of having and experiencing the things of life, we demand it. We better get it. It's our right. We better have what is due to us. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. Because that is the underlying assumption of every human being, especially when they're living in the ages that many of you guys are living right now, the prime years of your life. I mean, how else can you explain the pervasive depression, the pervasive disillusionment, the pervasive despair so many people go through now, some of you, because something hasn't happened yet. Something that you thought you would have by now, you don't have. Something that you thought you would experience by now, you haven't even experienced. You see, just like Abraham expected to have a baby in the prime years of his life, all of you are expecting a baby of your own. It may not be an actual literal baby, but it's something that you see, you treat as if it's a baby. Something that is so precious to you. Something so valuable. Something you're willing to work so hard to get. Something that you're willing to sacrifice for. It could be a business that you hope to one day open. It hopes to be a house that you hope to raise your children. It hopes to be a talent that you hope to be well known for and well compensated for. It could be a marriage that you hope to have your happily ever after. We all crave, we all long for something that we see as our baby, something that needs to be born into our lives. But just like Abraham, some of you, many of you, eventually all of you will discover that you too are struggling with barrenness, where something that you see as your precious that you thought will be born into your life by now hasn't yet even been conceived. And when you realize this, I ask you the question again, is Abraham relatable to you? Oh, yes, he is. Very much so. And if you're not careful, you can relate to him in a way that you don't want to. What do I mean? Well, let me read to you Abraham's attempt to overcome the barrier of his wife's barrenness and hence his barrenness. This is Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now she's pregnant, and she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant. Deal with her as you see fit. And then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that Hagar finally ran away. This is the account of Abraham's first child, Ishmael, right? A child that Sarah tried to adopt as her own because in that culture, anything that belonged to your slave was legally yours, right? And Sarah and Abraham thought that this would be a solution to this problem of their barrenness. But instead of solving a problem, they created a bigger one. Instead of realizing a dream, they created a nightmare. And as a result, Abraham suffered a greater heartache that exceeded the heartache of his barrenness. And it's this categorical heartache that so many people, so many of us, 
will fall into whenever we are just so desperate to have our quote-unquote baby, whatever it may be, that we're willing to do whatever it takes to have it at all cost. In fact, I'm willing to bet that you personally know someone who's suffering from this Abrahamic heartache. You have that friend of yours who married that person that you, along with your other friends, warned him not to marry. She's not the one. He's not the guy. But yet they went ahead and married that person, and now they're more lonely as a married person than they ever were as a single person. Or maybe you have that family member who opened that business when everyone at home was saying, this is not the right time, you're not ready, don't do it, went ahead and did it, and now they're in a bigger financial hole before they even dreamed of owning their own business. Or maybe you have that coworker who you know tried to realize some dream, thinking that it would involve all their family supporting them and enjoying this dream. But yet they have the dream and they have no family anymore because they did it at such a great sacrifice, pushing everyone away just to have this dream. You see, we all know people who are suffering incredible heartache and hardship because they try to do things at all costs to have my baby. I need this baby, right? And chances are, maybe that's you. If it isn't, there's a strong chance it could be because here's one thing I know about you, me, and all of us. We're all barren. There's something that we want that we don't have. There's something that we feel is our life that is our precious, that is our baby. And because we're in this, this mindset of just hardship and heartache because I don't have my baby, the temptation to do whatever it takes by any means necessary, even if it's outside of God's will, is something that you can easily fall into. And so here's the question. How do you and I make sure that we don't fall in to the same tragedy of Abraham? How do we cope with the barrenness so that we don't become so foolishly desperate that we make the mistake Abraham did? Well, this leads me to my final point, what Abraham reveals about Christmas. So as I said in my introduction, it's very easy to think that this Abraham fellow was this one-of-a-kind, unique, very accomplished person that no one could really match. But as I hope to have shown you, Abraham is just like you and me. Because just like you and me, Abraham longed for a baby, right? It was a literal baby. It was something that was so precious, something he wanted so badly. And he fell into such folly and such foolishness that he suffered a greater heartache than the heartache of being barren in the first place. And perhaps you've already suffered that same heartache as well, or you're being tempted to right now because you can't stand missing out, whatever it might be. Right? What can be done for this situation that we are in, that Abraham was in? Well, the Bible tells us something already been done. God came into the world through a virgin woman in the town of Bethlehem. God coming into the world on Christmas Day is God's response and solution to Abraham's barrenness and the fallout that came out of it. And he's also the solution for our barrenness and the heartache that we could fall into if we are foolish like he was. Let me draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. We're starting in verse 8. It's a long passage, but please bear with me. 
Take a listen. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised, he still lived there by faith, for he was still a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundation, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, even though she was barren. And she was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the skies and the sands on the seashores, there's no way to count them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. Why? They did not receive what was promised. But they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they have longed for a country they came from, they would have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he had prepared a city for them. Here we read what God did to solve the problem of Abraham's barrenness as well as what he has done for your current barrenness right now. And it all centers on this word, promise. It's repeated five times. Promise. God made a promise to Abraham to help him out of the hardships and heartache of despair because he was barren. And even because of the heartache, they came out of his foolishness. But what was the promise? It wasn't actually a promise for a literal child. It was a promise for something else, which was what? Verse 16, they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. This is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. God promised Abraham a heavenly homeland. A heavenly homeland, which is simply another way of referring to eternal life. Eternal life. Let me ask you, what makes life, life? What makes life the way it should be? As you think about that, here's another question I want to ask you. Have you ever heard anyone say something like, I can't live this way anymore. This is not the life I wanted. What are people assuming life should be when they make such statements? Aren't they assuming that life should be joyful, hopeful, meaningful, purposeful? Yes, indeed. And guess what? The Bible says that's exactly how life was designed by God to be. Because Scripture tells us that the greatest gift God gives to humanity is life itself, which makes total sense since the greatest punishment, the greatest curse God could give to us is the opposite of life. It's death. But again, we come back to the question at hand. What makes life, life? Read again verse 16. For God was not ashamed to call them to be called their God. The thing that makes life, life, what makes it joyful, meaningful, purposeful, hopeful, in other words, just full to where there's no room of anything being missed out, right, is when God is your God and he is the source of your life, okay? Maybe a better way to put it is when God is your baby. What happened on Christmas? God became the baby for you, for me. Christmas is trying to teach us that the baby you really don't want to miss out on, the baby that you never want to be barren from, the baby that is your life, is the one who came for you on Christmas Day. That is what 
God teaches us by coming into the world as an ancestor, excuse me, as a child of Abraham. Do you see? So often we think that we have missed out and therefore we are doomed, we're despairing, we're miserable because we missed out on my baby, the business, the marriage, maybe the actual baby itself. But Christmas tells us that God made sure you did not miss out on the only baby that matters, the baby that came to be yours. God has come for you. And when you understand that and when you realize that, whatever despair you feel right now, whatever doom you're feeling because you think you're so barren, all of a sudden shifts and changes. And now your life still starts feeling more full, more joyful, more hopeful, more meaningful, more purposeful. Hey, guess what? You're able to live life even when you thought you couldn't because you didn't have whatever baby you thought you needed. This is what I want you to remember. This is the hope that you have because the most important baby of all is yours. Your God is not ashamed to be called your God. Is that something that you're going to hold on to? My hope and prayer is you never let that go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this holiday season where it's so easy for us to think about what we want, what we think we need, what we feel we deserve, God, we pray that you will give us a sobering perspective, especially if we feel as if we have missed out and therefore we feel so barren. God, I know there are so many in this room who feel like the most precious thing that they desire, the thing that they want to experience, the thing they want to have more than anything is something that has not yet even been conceived or may not be conceived at all. Father, I pray especially for them that you would comfort them, that you would remind them that you've ensured that they would not miss out on the only thing that matters, that you have come for us and therefore we can be with you. Oh God, you are our greatest treasure. You are our greatest delight. Help us to remember that, especially now, for we know it is so easy for us to become so bitter and so frustrated. Help us instead to live out what Christmas is supposed to do in us. Help us to be joyful. Help us to feel like we are living meaningful lives. Help us to be people full of hope. Help us to be full to where we know nothing is missing at all. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give the Lord his